And yeah, I did experience threats. I was not treated well by some of the people I challenged on how they treated the women. Um, But, you know, the great thing about being a journalist is if you really get at what can drive you in it, it is giving voice to the voiceless. It's bringing sunlight to a problem that needs to be exposed. And you've got to have faith that it can get better. Welcome to the Persistence You podcast with Lisbeth, and that's you as in university. But we're much more of a community here. I'm your host, Lisbeth Meredith, author, speaker, and online teacher. Each week, I'll be delivering stories from amazing survivors and strivers, all threaded together with a dose of persistence. So glad you're listening. It's Lisbeth for a quick update, a correction, and an invitation. It is such a joy to have Maria Henson on today's podcast, but I did misspeak in one place she reminded me of afterward, and that is that when she did her fabulous columns, uh, you know, her expose basically to have and to harm back in the 19, early 1990s, she did publish photos of survivors as well as police officers and judges who stood in the way of justice and really celebrated ones who helped survivors of domestic abuse make it through the justice system. However, she did not publish their personal at-home addresses. So that was a mistake on my part. And also an invitation to next week. We're on a roll here with Women's History Month. And so I'm so thrilled that Maria Henson is here this week Next week, it will be Heather Flynn. If you've read my book, and if you haven't, why not? But Pieces of Me, Rescuing My Kidnapped Daughters, you'll know that I worked at a domestic abuse shelter and that the executive director became a dear friend of mine. Her name is Heather Flynn. Next week, she will be the honored guest on Persistence U, talking about the thing she's most proud of, which is working on Title IX locally in Alaska helping women have access to education and all of the other things in the educational system that men do. So please don't miss it. Thanks always for being here. I love when you share, review, and or, you know, rate the podcast, follow us on YouTube. Love it. Thanks for being here. Have a wonderful week. Hi, Persisters and Brothers. Welcome to Women's History Month. It's Lisbeth at Persistence U. And of course, I am so incredibly excited and anxious, actually, really nervous. But today I have a wonderful podcast guest who doesn't do a lot of this. She doesn't, you know, she's not out promoting herself. She's somebody I had to find and beg to be on the show. And I'm so glad she did. And then the hour after I record this, I get to talk to a group of university students at the University of Michigan Psychology. And this private school, all of the students are going to be clinicians. And I get to talk to them about Women's History Month and why it matters as part of my uh, speaking at colleges situation. So anyway, I'm really excited to be inspired by a woman who did make history, and she certainly impacted my history. Maria Henson is a professor now. She is a writer, a Pulitzer Prize winning 
author, writer. But before that, how I found out about her was I have an amazing, had an amazing uh, Appalachian of literature of Appalachian women class in my undergraduate degree. When I was on welfare, I was on public assistance, living in Section 8 housing, trying to keep my kids safe and had left a violent marriage and, you know, super poor, super scared and hopeful for a future that would be different. And I was thinking about becoming, and this makes me giggle, a pharmaceutical sales representative because I had a doctor friend at the time who said, I think you'd be great at it. You'd make a ton of money and you could parent your kids effectively, have a more flexible schedule. Well, I was sold on that because I had no vision at that point. And then came this class, Ginny Carney taught it, my dear mentor, Virginia Carney. And she told us students about a writer named Maria Henson. So I'm finishing college. I'm in my 20s, going through all that stuff. And here is this writer, Maria Henson. She was from, well, she was at the time living in Kentucky. And what happened, this was in the early 1990s. So Maria Henson understood that there were many victims of domestic abuse in the state of Kentucky who were not being listened to. Police officers were not making the arrests, even when there were obvious injuries. Um, Judges were throwing out protective orders. They were not granting protective orders to some survivor or to some victims. We're talking serious, serious injuries, sometimes gunshots, stabbings. I mean, awful. And yet it seemed like nothing was being done. So this young and scrappy reporter took them to task. And Maria Henson wrote a series that did what net her the Pulitzer, but she would literally write about uh, survivor stories and take police officers' pictures and judges' pictures with their addresses and would publish those in her series with their personal addresses. I'm telling you, their home street addresses. It was amazing. She was holding the system to account in a way that no one had done in that area. She was living in Lexington. I may have said Berea, but I meant Lexington, Kentucky. And she, at the Lexington Herald Leader, took the system to task, held it accountable. And it seemed like in nanoseconds, lawmakers changed their minds on how to proceed. Things really happened. And I just so am, admire, I, I thought she was much older at that point than I was. And she really wasn't. It's just that I assumed because she was so smart that she did this and so fearless because that came at her own, you know, I'm sure it was a little bit dangerous. It reminds me of a quote that I very much love by Angela Davis. I'm no longer accepting things I cannot change. I'm changing things I cannot accept. Love that. And that is what Maria Henson did. Of course, uh, Dr. Jenny Carney changed my life just by that course, by having women's writings be celebrated, having women who were poor be shown in a light that showed their strength and not their weakness and creating a supportive environment for women to learn in. It changed my world. I naturally gravitated immediately toward working with survivors of domestic violence for the next many years and many other careers that have not 
uh, paid like pharmaceutical sales would have, and yet changed my life. And I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't do a thing different. Do I weep a little sometimes when I pay my bills? Yes. But there is a different kind of currency that comes with a sense of mission. So Maria Henson has it. I can't wait to introduce you to her. Please share, follow everything you can. And I'm so thankful as ever that you are here. We will get started. Maria Henson, thank you so much. And Dr. Henson, you know, Thank you for being here today on Persistence You. I can't even tell you what it means to me as I did not know you, but looked you up randomly because I was so touched by your work. So thank you for being gracious and kind and all of that. Before we get started, could you tell us a little bit about what you're doing today before we talk about how I got to know your work? Sure. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really honored to be with you today. Uh, I am talking to you from Wake Forest University in okay. Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where I'm associate vice president and editor at large. And basically what I do here now is run the magazine online and in print, uh, celebrating what we have as our motto, which is pro humanitate for humanity here at Wake Forest. Okay. I also teach and have taught since 2010, since I came back to my university, my alma mater, uh, in the journalism program. Uh, and in 2011, thanks to some really great foundational work in New York by Stony Brook University, um, I created our news literacy class here that I teach. Sort of before fake news was a, was a thing, we were talking about it in my classes. I love it. You were a visionary even then. <laughs> so I was paying attention to the signs and signals out there in the universe, which I think we all, we all should do it more often. That's right. <laughs> That is so exciting. And of course, and I mentioned this in your introduction, but I became familiar with you when I, my beloved instructor, uh, Dr. Jenny Carney, uh, dropped uh, one of your articles from the Lexington Herald on my desk as a student. And there was a picture of a woman's disfigured face and your writing, which was Amazing. I'd never seen such searing journalism and such ferocity. And I thought, because I was in my 20s at the time, I thought you must have been like, I just assumed everyone who was super smart and accomplished had to be 50. And so I didn't realize at the time that you were just a child. You were like maybe in your 20s or early 30s. It was fabulous. So can you tell, wind the clock back a little bit, and this is a half hour show, but wind the clock back to the, that time when you got the idea and you went to your editor to say things are happening here in Kentucky to, to domestic abuse victims. I don't mean to pick on Kentucky because it was going on everywhere, but you happen to live in Kentucky. That's where I was born. So love it. But uh, can you tell us about the moment when you got okay to do this series? Elizabeth, I have to also start on a light note, which is you're so funny talking about being 50. Well, I was a Washington correspondent when I got the call about coming to Kentucky to join the editorial board, and I was 29 years old. Okay. And I thought to be an editorial writer, you needed to be at least 40, like really old. Right. <laughs> I thought, why are they wanting me to come? But I really, really fell in love with this little scrappy editorial board in this incredible newspaper. 
And I thought, how am I going to be an opinion writer? I have no opinions, even about my favorite color at the time. Right. I did know the value of being a journalist and a reporter and digging, but I figured they would help me learn how to be an editorial writer. I did not know, though, that within a not even a year after I got there, so I was 29, when a woman was taken hostage by her estranged husband in Lexington. And that's where this project began. Um, I didn't know it was a project at the time. All we knew was basically our editorial board slept through what was a 17-hour hostage crisis, where the estranged husband came in from rural Virginia, took his wife and other people hostage, shot two men on the scene, let children go. But by the end, he had murdered his estranged wife and killed himself. Mm. So my job the next day was to write an editorial about the situation. Had what had happened, had the system failed her, the system, and I used air quotes with that. I started making calls because actually, you know, our police reporter, our reporting staff had been on the scene. I was just coming in to try to assess and create some meaning around what might need to happen next. I wrote part of an editorial that never was finished from that day because every call led to another call to another call like, uh oh, in Kentucky at that time, the best place to be if you were a battered woman with children or a battered woman period was in Lexington. There were better laws and um, trained wow. officials in place. Okay. So you were, so at I the- ran to the editor, which was a fantastic, okay. I had fantastic editors, John Carroll, one of the greatest of his generation and David Holwork. And I said, oh my gosh, there are some serious issues out in Kentucky. You need to give the investigative team this project. I didn't call it project. Tell them to get on it because it's bad. What's happening to women is terrible. And John looked at me and said, no, you're going to keep it. And you're going to go and find out what's out there. Wow. For anybody wanting to be a journalist, that's like, I think some of the best advice I still tell my students on my syllabus, I quote John saying, find out what's out there. In other words, go with an open mind and curiosity about what you might find. Well, I knew nothing about this issue. My parents, I'm so delighted, are in their 80s and they are coming up on their 64th wedding anniversary. Oh. So I did not know about the dynamics of family violence, but I had to learn very quickly about that. So after the Jeannie Purcell murder suicide, that's when I started to learn. And I, you know, I delved into journals, I talked to national experts, I talked to local. Uh, advocates. I tried to steep myself in it. And then it was, I was also starting to talk with women about their stories. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to make this too long, but the, the point is that, you know, you're giving me so much credit, but the real credit is that I had a network around me taking good care of me as I went off to do this hard project um, and learn things that I just because I was so young and kind of naive, I didn't really understand that this is the kind of terrorism that was happening in people's homes all around. So they're very upsetting. Wow. Yes. People who believed in me and who said, keep going. But the most important thing I had were the women who were the, they are the ones, they're the brave ones. Yeah. They told their stories and they allowed a new um, unusual form of editorials to appear with their faces 
you know, with their own words, with wow. photographs. So they put themselves at risk in this kind of project, which then became more, um, you know, there were other editorial pages that adopted that kind of close-up narrative with photographs, with uh, documents, that kind of style after this appeared. So over the course of the year, there were 30 editorials. uh, And in 1992, after we had proposed some solutions legislatively, all the all the bills passed, which was wow. a tremendous um, a tremendous gift from the women who told their stories, but also from the community because in those days, uh, newspapers really did have a lot of power locally to create public awareness and give people an idea of how they could make a difference. And I saw. Uh, women's groups and church groups throughout Kentucky work to change the laws. That's so beautiful. See, it's a network. It's a web of support. And also politicians and people within the legal enforcement who were doing their job did their part too to help. I love it. I love it. One of the things I remember is reading <laughs> some of your work and you had pictures of the people who failed survivors, you had their addresses. I mean, you called it out. And I think that was so amazing as someone who at the time was still going through what would be years more of being terrorized for leaving. You know, my spouse would not let go, was relentless. And to realize that there was somebody who felt brave enough to hold the system accountable. And like you said, Nothing great that we accomplish in life is done alone. So I do appreciate that you say that, that you had an amazing staff that you worked with who believed in you and the community and the faith communities and all of that. It truly does take a village to do anything worthwhile. Um, But you did. You absolutely did. Was there any time when you were scared for your own safety? Yes, I was, but more afraid for the women's safety. Right. Uh, it's an unusual thing to go on the record with a journalist, but have the journalist say, if for some reason you become too frightened or you're threatened in some way, then you just need to call me, <laughs> not on a cell phone, right? Because I didn't have those. I had a landline, right. but right. left some power there for the women to change their mind because the risk felt very great to us. People hit it, right? Mm-hmm. But one of the people, when she read the piece, one of the uh, local citizens who owned the barbecue restaurant, Scotty's Pink Pig Barbecue, was so outraged and so upset that she got a stack of the reprints and her barbecue place was near the Capitol. So people were always coming from the Capitol to get barbecue and she'd give them a reprint at the same time. Oh, my One person Raising her voice on behalf I of her love friend, it. neighbor, her, you know, a child in their community, a young woman in their community. It was so powerful to see the images of the wounds, frankly. Uh, it was in your face because of family violence before, we were supposed to keep it quiet and not talk about it. And as one of my relatives said in a family reunion, it's just the way it was. We didn't complain about it. I'm like, I know, and you should have. <laughs> but, <laughs> but when you had those newspapers, or those papers with the injuries, you can't ignore it. It just sparks such outrage. 
And so what a great thing that they did this, you know, made sure that they did what they could. Everyone did their little bit to make a mighty change in the lives of families uh, and family safety, as far as I'm concerned. So that is so great. When did you know that you were up for an award for this series? Well, the word got to us that I was a finalist. I wasn't supposed to know that, but somebody leaked some of those like finalist info back around March before the award was made in April. And another part of this is, of course, uh, for somebody like me, I thought that those were for the New York Times reporters or journalists from the Washington Post. I was like, they're not going to pick anybody from Lexington, are they? And sure enough, they did. Amazing. I was 31, about to turn 32. And the world was all of a sudden crazy because your phone rings off the hook and uh, lots of opportunities came my way. I can't even imagine. Pulitzer Prize at the age of 31. That's amazing. That is so well-deserved, but wow, it would be overwhelming. And I imagine could even have that little moment of like, well, where do we go from here? You know, how do you top that? Or do you just say to yourself, I'm so grateful. Now it's time to pivot. I have to be completely honest that the gratitude just carried me through the rest of my career. You know, how, how fortunate I was to have lightning strike and you have this lightning in a bottle moment. Um, And then I went on and edited a series that won a Pulitzer in California. So I got to have that other experience of being someone shepherding a writer uh, as I had been shepherded and as I had been mentored by these incredible people in Kentucky. Yeah, that is so fantastic. So there's that, is it, this is Women's History Month and this will be published in Women's History Month, but there's that important thing about reaching back out and mentoring the next person to come in your place. That is so fantastic. I just, how exciting. And then you went to Africa at some point. Could you say a little bit about that? Yes, I fell in love with uh, Sub-Saharan Africa in Botswana on a vacation. And I went back to the Sacramento Bee and said, may I? It's kind of a crazy idea, but I want to go and live in Botswana for a year. And so I taught at the University of Botswana for a month, but my main time there was spending all the time I could with the people of Botswana in the safari lodges, taking little planes, taking jeeps to try to get the elephants off the grassy runways, greeting guests from all over the world. I just had this incredible experience of being in nature and also really, again, appreciating another culture, a culture that is so kind. The people there celebrate community first, probably way differently than we do about celebrating the individual and the individual's accomplishments. It's all about sharing there. And then the beauty of just this untouched nature in so many ways gave me a lot of quiet and appreciation Mm. for my life and my journey. I love it. And then you returned home to your home place to teach, right? Yes. Ended up leaving. You know, I had left the bee. Uh, I'd gone back to Africa because I thought I was going to write a book, but that did not turn out to be the case. And I didn't want to do that book. So that led me to academia. But I'm not doctor. I have no PhD, but I have okay. a lot of life experience and really I love it. in the power of journalism still. 
despite I, all the, yes, uh, absolutely. <laughs> You're living proof that sharing our stories, and that is the theme of Women's History Month this month, is you know celebrating women who tell our stories. And you're living proof that telling our stories can change our world and the world for the better for people around us. So I accidentally gave you an honorary doctorate degree. <laughs> you deserve it. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> From persistence, you, you have it. <laughs> I just think that is a beautiful life lived and what a satisfying career. What would you say to young women who are thinking about being writers but they're worried about, you know, the state of journalism or money or this or that. But what benefits would you offer that writing still has? Oh, well, I do talk to a lot of women about those kinds of things now uh, in my role here at the university. And it doesn't have to be somebody who's going into journalism. It's more about really paying ten- attention to your own, your own intuition your own instinct for what gives you energy, go toward that. Don't go toward what everybody wants you to do because it's going to make sense to somebody else. Go toward what your passion is leading you toward now. And it may not be something that makes a lot of money. I certainly did not make a lot of money as a young reporter. Uh, But I was so intrigued by this adventure that awaited you know, to to go into journalism, to ask anybody any question I might want to know about, to have a real experience of a broad education. So I don't think any of those other restrictions should stop you. It's like what's in your mind that stops you or what's in society's expectations that stop you. Right. I always tell them, it's like, if you feel strongly go do it, do it for a while. And if you don't like it, that's okay. You can change course, but go towards something that really is feeding your soul. Something that lights you up. I think that sounds absolutely fantastic. Can people find any longer your articles that you wrote at the Lexington Herald leader? Well, unfortunately those came out in, uh, you know, in print form and it was before, before the internet. So um, I do have some PDFs of that series. And so if somebody wanted that, the series that we have in that form, I can send it to you. I mean, you'd have to go to microfilm and nobody's okay. going to do that. But to me, you can get it there. And then I've published some things here that are really good news pieces about amazing people um, through okay. magazine.wfu.edu. One of <laughs> whom is just somebody I adore. He's a, I went all the way to Ethiopia to tell his story was a shepherd boy. Talk about courageous and curious. A shepherd boy who somehow kept a little business card from a man he met who told him someday if you need help with your education, here you go. And the little card plus $30 went into his pocket, but one pocket had a hole in it. That's where the business card was, but he didn't know what a business card was. He walked 12 hours to an internet cafe after somebody told him. He got in touch with the guy. He ended up at Wake Forest out of like the land of where he was a shepherd and where he wrote on rocks to add sums. And now he's at USC making films, but he believed in opportunity. He believed in never, ever giving up. I love it. Helton was the founder of Tom's Shoes. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That is so beautiful. What a great story. Stories are out there. They really inform what's possible for anyone. Right. 
And it it's so refreshing if you've written about a lot of trauma as you had to be able to illuminate some very positive things. I think one thing that excited me after I wrote my memoir, largely trauma and resilience was getting a story in chicken soup for the soul. I was like, I wrote about a stray cat and people were happy. <laughs> so it is good to really shine a light on what is possible. Yes. I mean, we've got stories that are really hard and they are filled with trauma because right. they need attention. But then we also need to feed that other side of us to, to be able to recognize the good in and the is, world. And there is so much. There is much to celebrate. And on this Women's History Day, I'm definitely celebrating you. So thank you for being here. Thank you so much for being such a spark of inspiration to me, but to so many other people. And I know you did it in a team and there were lots of people behind, but it still took a lot of courage. So I'm so honored to have met you today and hope to in person one day. Thank you. You're so welcome. It's been my pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed this week's show. Thank you for listening. If you have enjoyed it, feel free to leave a review. And if you've really, really enjoyed it, go ahead and subscribe. And I'll see you next week. Proud member of the Podnougan Network.